Book six, chapter forty five of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book six, chapter forty five. In the weeks which followed, weeks often of mental and physical depression, caused by his sense of personal loss, and by the influence of an overworked state he could not be got to admit. Ellesmere owed much to Hugh Flaxman's cheery, sympathetic temper, and became more attached to him than ever, and more ready than ever, should the fates deem it so, to welcome him as a brother-in-law. However, the fates for the moment seemed to have borrowed a leaf from Langham's book, and did not apparently know their own minds. It says volumes for Hugh Flaxman's gentle capacities as a human being, that at this period he should have had any attention to give to a friend, his position as a lover was so dubious and difficult. After the evening at the workmen's club, and as a result of further meditation, he greatly developed the tactics first adopted on that occasion. He beaten a masterly retreat, and Rage Laban was troubled with him no more. The result was that a certain brilliant young person was soon sharply conscious of a sudden drop in the pleasures of living. Mr. Flaxman had been the Laban's most constant and entertaining visitor. During the whole of May he paid one formal call to Lerwick Gardens, and was then entertained tete-a-tete -tete by Mrs. Laban, to Rose's intense subsequent annoyance, who knew perfectly well that her mother was incapable of chattering about anything but her daughters. He still sent flowers, but they came from his head gardener, addressed to Mrs. Laban. Agnes put them in water, and Rose never gave them a look. Rose went to Lady Helen's, because Lady Helen made her, and was much too engaging a creature to be rebuffed. But, however merry and protracted the teas in these scented rooms might be, Mr. Flaxman's step on the stairs, and Mr. Flaxman's hand on the curtain over the door, till now the feature in the entertainment most to be counted on, were, generally speaking, conspicuously absent. He and the Labans met, of course, for their list of common friends was now considerable. But Agnes, reporting matters to Catherine, could only say that each of these occasions left Rose more irritable and more inclined to say biting things as to the foolish ways in which society takes its pleasures. Rose certainly was irritable, and at times, Agnes thought, depressed. But as usual she was unapproachable about her own affairs, and the state of her mind could only be somewhat dolefully gathered from the fact that she was much less unwilling to go back to Wormwood this summer than had ever been known before. Meanwhile, Mr. Flaxman left certain other people in no doubt as to his intentions. "'My dear aunt,' he said calmly to Lady Charlotte, "'I mean to marry Miss Laban, if I can at any time persuade her to have me. So much you may take us fixed, and it would be quite waste of breath on your part to quote dukes to me. But the other factor in the problem is by no means fixed. Miss Laban won't have me at present, and as for the future I have most salutary qualms.' "'You!' interrupted Lady Charlotte angrily. "'as if you hadn't had the mothers of London at your feet for years!' Lady Charlotte was in a most variable frame of mind, one day hoping devoutly that the Langham affair might prove lasting enough in its effects to tire Hugh out, the next outraged that a silly girl should waste a thought on such a creature while Hugh was in her way, at one time angry that an insignificant chit of a schoolmaster's daughter should apparently care so little to be the Duke of Sebber's niece and should even dare to allow herself the luxury of snubbing a flaxman. At another, utterly sceptical as to any lasting obduracy on the chit's part. The girl was clearly anxious not to fall too easily, but as to final refusal, poof! 
and it made her mad that Hugh would hold himself so cheap. Meanwhile, Mr. Flaxman felt himself in no way called upon to answer that remark of his aunt's we have recorded. "'I have qualms,' he repeated, "'but I mean to do all I know, and you and Helen must help me.' Lady Charlotte crossed her hands before her. "'I may be a liberal and a lion-hunter,' she said firmly, "'but I have still conscience enough left not to aid and abet my nephew in throwing himself away.' She had nearly slipped in again, but just saved herself. "'Your conscience is all a matter of the Duke,' he told her. "'Well, if you won't help me, then Helen and I will have to arrange it by ourselves.' But this did not suit Lady Charlotte at all. She had always played the part of earthly providence to this particular nephew, and it was abominable to her that the wretch, having refused for ten years to provide her with a love affair to manage, should now manage one for himself in spite of her. "'You are such an arbitrary creature,' she said fretfully. "'You prance about the world like Don Quixote, and expect me to play Sancho without a murmur.' "'How many drubbings have I brought you yet?' he asked her, laughing. He was really very fond of her. "'It is true there is a point of likeness. I won't take your advice. But then why don't you give me better? It is strange,' he added, musing. "'Women talk to us about love as if we were too gross to understand it. And when they come to business, and they're not in it themselves, they show the temper of attorneys.' "'Love!' cried Lady Charlotte, nettled. "'Do you mean to tell me, Hugh, that you are really seriously in love with that girl?' "'Well, I only know,' he said, thrusting his hands far into his pockets, "'that unless things mend I shall go out to California in the autumn and try ranching.' Lady Charlotte burst into an angry laugh. He stood opposite to her, with his orchid in his buttonhole, himself the fine flower of civilization. "'Ranching, indeed!' However, he had done so many odd things in his life that, as she knew, it was never quite safe to decline to take him seriously, and he had looked at her now so defiantly, his clear greenish eyes so wide open and alert, that her will began to waver under the pressure of his. "'What do you want me to do, sir?' His glance relaxed at once, and he laughingly explained to her that what he had asked of her was to keep the prey in sight. "'I can do nothing for myself at present,' he said. I get on her nerves. She was in love with that black-haired enfant du siècle, or rather she prefers to assume that she was, and I haven't given her time to forget him. Serious blunder, and I deserve to suffer for it. Very well, then, I retire, and I ask you and Helen to keep watch. Don't let her go. Make yourself nice to her. And, in fact, spoil me a little now I am on the high road to forty, as you used to spoil me at fourteen. Mr. Flaxman sat down by his aunt and kissed her hand, after which Lady Charlotte was as wax before him. "'Thank heaven,' she reflected, "'in ten days the Duke and all of them will go out of town. Retribution, therefore, for wrongdoing would be tardy, if wrongdoing there must be.' She could but ruefully reflect that, after all, the girl was beautiful and gifted. Moreover, if he would force her to befriend him in this criminality, there might be a certain joy in thereby vindicating those liberal principles of hers in which a scornful family had always refused to believe. So, being driven into it, she would fain have done it boldly and with a dash. But she could not rid her mind of the Duke, and her performance all through, as a matter of fact, was blundering. However, she was for the time very gracious to Rose, being in truth really fond of her, and Rose, however high she might hold her little head, could find no excuse for quarrelling 
either with her or Lady Helen. Towards the middle of June there was a grand ball given by Lady Fauntleroy at Fauntleroy House, to which the two Miss Labans, by Lady Helen's machinations, were invited. It was to be one of the events of the season, and when the cards arrived, to have the honour of meeting their royal highnesses, etc., etc., Mrs. Laban, good soul, gazed at them with eyes which grew a little moist under her spectacles. She wished Richard could have seen the girls dressed just once. But Rose treated the cards with no sort of tenderness. "'If one could but put them up to auction,' she said flippantly, holding them up, "'how many German opera tickets I should get for nothing? I don't know what Agnes feels. As for me, I have neither nerve enough for the people nor money enough for the toilette.' However, with eleven o'clock, Lady Helen ran in, a fresh vision of blue and white, to suggest certain dresses for the sisters which had occurred to her in the visions of the night. Original, adorable, cost a mere nothing. My harpy, she remarked, alluding to her dressmaker, would ruin you over them, of course. Your maid, for Laban's possessed a remarkably clever one, will make them divinely for Tuppence Halfpenny. Listen. Rose listened. Her eye kindled. The maid was summoned and the invitation accepted in Agnes's neatest hand. Even Catherine was roused during the following ten days to a smiling indulgent interest in the concerns of the workroom. The evening came, and Lady Helen fetched the sisters in her carriage. The ball was a magnificent affair. The house was one of historical interest and importance, and all that the ingenuity of the present could do to give fresh life and gaiety to the pillared rooms, the carved galleries and stately staircases of the past, had been done. The ballroom, lined with Van Dykes and Lely's, glowed softly with electric light. The picture gallery had been banked with flowers and carpeted with red, and the beautiful dresses of the women trailed up and down it, challenging the satins of the Netschers and the Turbergs on the walls. Rose's card was soon full to overflowing. The young men present were of the smartest, and would not willingly have bowed the knee to a nobody, however pretty. But Lady Helen's devotion, the girl's reputation as a musician, and her little nonchalant disdainful ways, gave her a kind of prestige, which made her, for the time being at any rate, the equal of anybody. Petitioners came and went away empty. Royalty was introduced, and smiled both upon the beauty and the beauty's delicate and becoming dress. And still Rose, though a good deal more flushed and erect than usual, and though flesh and blood could not resist the contagious pleasure which glistened even in the eyes of that sage Agnes, was more than half inclined to say with the preacher that all was vanity. Presently, as she stood waiting with her hand on her partner's arm before gliding into a waltz, she saw Mr. Flaxman opposite to her, and with him a young debutante in white tulle, a thin, pretty, undeveloped creature, whose sharp elbows and timid movements together with a blushing enjoyment glowing so frankly from her face, pointed her out as the schoolgirl of sweet seventeen, just emancipated and trying her wings. "'Ah, oh, there is Lady Florence,' said her partner, a handsome young hussar. "'This ball is in her honour, you know. She comes out to-night. What, another cousin? Really, she keeps too much in the family.' "'Is Mr. Flaxman a cousin?' The young man replied that he was, and then, in the intervals of waltzing, went on to explain to her the relationships of many of the people present, till the whole gorgeous affair began to seem to Rose a mere family party. Mr. Flaxman was of it. She was not. "'Why am I here?' the little Jacobin said to herself fiercely as she waltzed. "'It is foolish, unprofitable. 
I do not belong to them, nor they to me. "'Miss Laban, charmed to see you,' cried Lady Charlotte, stopping her, and then in a loud whisper in her ear, "'Never saw you look better. Your taste, or Helen's, that dress? The rose is exquisite.' Rose dropped her a little mock curtsy, and whirled on again. "'Lady Florence's are always well-dressed,' thought the child angrily. "'And who notices it?' Another turn brought them against Mr. Flaxman and his partner. Mr. Flaxman came at once to greet her with smiling courtesy. "'I have a Cambridge friend to introduce you, a beautiful youth. Shall I find you by Helen? Now, Lady Florence, patience a moment. That corner is too crowded. How good that last turn was!' and, bending with a sort of kind chivalry over his partner, who looked at him with the eyes of a joyous, excited child, he led her away. Five minutes later, Rose, standing flushed by Lady Helen, saw him coming again towards her, ushering a tall, blue-eyed youth whom he introduced to her as Lord Wainfleet. The handsome boy looked at her with the boy's open admiration, and beguiled her of a supper-dance, while a group standing near, a mother and three daughters, stood watching with cold eyes and expressions which said plainly to the initiated that mere beauty was receiving a ridiculous amount of attention. "'I wouldn't have given it to him, but it is rude, it is bad manners not even to ask,' for supposed Victress was saying to herself, with quivering lips, her eyes following not the Trinity freshman who was their latest captive, but an older man's well-knit figure, and a head on which the fair hair was already growing scantily, receding a little from the fine intellectual brows. An hour later she was again standing by Lady Helen, waiting for a partner, when she saw two persons crossing the room, which was just beginning to fill again for dancing, towards them. One was Mr. Flaxman, the other was a small, wrinkled old man, who leant upon his arm, displaying the ribbon of the garter as he walked. "'Dear me!' said Lady Helen, a little fluttered. "'Here is my Uncle Semba. I thought they had left town.' The pair approached and the old duke bowed over his niece's hand with the manners of a past generation. "'I made you give me an arm,' he said quaveringly. "'These floors are homicidal. If I came down to them I shall bring an action.' "'I thought you'd all left town,' said Lady Helen. "'Who can make plans with a government in power pledged to every sort of villainy and public plunder?' said the old man testily. "'I suppose Varley's there to-night.' helping to vote away my property and Fauntleroy's. "'Some of his own, too, if you please,' said Lady Helen, smiling. "'Yes, I suppose he is waiting for the division, or he would be here.' "'I wonder why Providence blessed me with such a radical crew of relations,' remarked the Duke. "'Hugh is a regular communist. I never heard such arguments in my life. And as for any idea of standing by his order—' The old man shook his bald head, and shrugged his small shoulders with almost French vivacity. He had been handsome once, and delicately featured, but now the left eye drooped, and the face had a strong look of peevishness and ill-health. "'Uncle,' interposed Lady Helen, "'let me introduce you to my two great friends, Miss Laban, Miss Rose Laban.' The Duke bowed, looked at them through a pair of sharp eyes, seemed to cogitate inwardly whether such a name had ever been known to him and turned to his nephew. "'Get me out of this, Hugh, and I shall be obliged to you. Young people may risk it, but if I broke I shouldn't mend.' Still grumbling audibly about the floor, he hobbled off towards the picture-gallery. Mr. Flaxman had only time for a smiling backward glance at Rose. 
"'Have you given my pretty boy a dance?' "'Yes,' she said, but with as much stiffness as she might have shown to his uncle. "'That's over,' said Lady Helen, with relief. "'My uncle hardly meets any of us now without a spa. "'He has never forgiven my father for going over to the Liberals. "'And then he thinks we none of us consult him enough. "'No more we do, except Aunt Charlotte. "'She's afraid of him.' "'Lady Charlotte afraid?' echoed Rose. "'Odd, isn't it? "'The Duke avenges a good many victims on her, if they only knew.' Lady Helen was called away, and Rose was left standing, wondering what had happened to her partner. Opposite, Mr. Flaxman was pushing through a doorway, and Lady Florence was again on his arm. At the same time she became conscious of a morsel of chaperone's conversation, such as, by the kind contrivances of fate, a girl is tolerably sure to hear under similar circumstances. The debutantes' good looks, Hugh Flaxman's apparent susceptibility to them, the possibility of results, and the satisfactory disposition of the family goods and chattels that would be brought about by such a match, the opportunity it would offer the man, too, of rehabilitating himself socially after his first matrimonial escapade. Rose caught fragments of all these topics, as they were discussed by two old ladies, presumably also of the family ring, who gossiped behind her with more gusto than discretion. High-mindedness, of course, told her to move away. Something else held her fast, till her partner came up to her. Then she floated away into the whirlwind of waltzers. But as she moved round the room on her partner's arm, her delicate, half-scornful grace attracting look after look, the soul within was all aflame, aflame against the serried ranks and phalanxes of this unfamiliar, hostile world. She had just been reading Trevelyan's Life of Fox aloud to her mother, who liked occasionally to flavour her knitting with literature, and she began now to revolve a passage from it, describing the upper class of the last century, which had struck that morning on her quick, retentive memory. A few thousand people who thought that the world was made for them—did it not run so?—and that all outside their own fraternity were unworthy of notice or criticism, bestowed upon each other an amount of attention quite inconceivable. Within the charmed precincts there prevailed an easy and natural mode of intercourse, in some respects singularly delightful. Such, for instance, as the Duke of Semper was master of. Well, it was worth while, perhaps, to have gained an experience, even at the expense of certain illusions as to the manners of dukes, and, and as to the constancy of friends. But never again, never again, said the impetuous inner voice. I have my world, they theirs. But why so strong a flood of bitterness against our poor upper class, so well-intentioned for its occasional lack of lucidity, should have arisen in so young a breast, it is a little difficult for the most conscientious biographer to explain. She had partners to her heart's desire. Young Lord Wainfleet used his utmost arts upon her to persuade her that at least half a dozen numbers of the regular programme were extras and therefore at his disposal. And when royalties upped, it was graciously pleased to adjoin that Lady Helen and her two companions should sup behind the same folding doors as itself while beyond these doors surged the inferior crowd of persons who had been specially invited to meet their royal highnesses, and had so far been held worthy neither to dance nor to eat in the same room with them. But in vain. Rose still felt herself, for all her laughing outward insouciance, a poor, bruised, helpless chattel, trodden under the heel of a world which was intolerably powerful, rich and self-satisfied, the odious product of family arrangements. 
Mr. Flaxman sat far away at the same royal table as herself. Beside him was the thin, tall debutante. "'She's like one of the Gainsborough princesses,' thought Rose, studying her with involuntary admiration. "'Of course it is all plain. He will get everything he wants, and a Lady Florence into the bargain. Radical, indeed! What nonsense!' Then it startled her to find that the eyes of Lady Florence's neighbour were, as it seemed, on herself. Or was he merely nodding to Lady Helen? and she began immediately to give a smiling attention to the man on her left. An hour later, she and Agnes and Lady Helen were descending the great staircase on their way to their carriage. The morning light was flooding through the chinks of the carefully veiled windows. Lady Helen was yawning behind her tiny white hand, her eyes nearly asleep. But the two sisters, who had not been up till three on four preceding nights, like their chaperone, were still almost as fresh as the flowers massed in the hall below. "'Ah, there is Hugh!' cried Lady Helen. "'How I hope he's found the carriage!' At that moment Rose slipped on a spray of gardenia which had dropped from the bouquet of some predecessor. To prevent herself from falling downstairs, she caught hold of the stem of a brazen chandelier fixed in the balustrade. It saved her, but she gave her arm a most painful wrench, and leant limp and white against the railing of the stairs. Lady Helen turned at Agnes's exclamation, but before she could speak, as it seemed, Mr. Flaxman, who had been standing talking just below them, was on the stairs. "'You've hurt your arm. Don't speak. Take mine. Let me get you downstairs out of the crush.' She was too far gone to resist, and when she was mistress of herself again, she found herself in the library with some water in her hand which Mr. Flaxman had just put there. "'Is it the playing hand?' said Lady Helen, anxiously. "'No,' said Rose, trying to laugh. "'The bowing elbow.' And she raised him but with a contortion of pain. "'Don't raise it,' he said peremptorily. "'We will have a doctor here in a moment, and have it bandaged.' He disappeared. Rose tried to sit up, seized with a frantic longing to disobey him and get off before he returned. Stinging the girl's mind was the sense that it might all perfectly well seem to him a planned appeal to his pity. "'Agnes, help me up,' she said, with a little involuntary groan. "'I shall be better at home.' but both Lady Helen and Agnes laughed her to scorn, and she lay back once more, overwhelmed by fatigue and faintness. A few more minutes, and a doctor appeared, caught by good luck in the next street. He pronounced it a severe muscular strain, but nothing more, applied a lotion, and improvised a sling. Rose consulted him anxiously as to the interference with her playing. "'No meek,' he said. "'No more, if you are careful.' Her pale face brightened. Her art had seemed specially dear to her of late. "'Hugh!' called Lady Helen, going to the door. "'Now we are ready for the carriage.' Rose, leaning on Agnes, walked out into the hall. They found him there, waiting. "'The carriage is here,' he said, bending towards her with a look and tone which so stirred the fluttered nerves that the sense of faintness stole back upon her. "'Let me take you to it.' "'Thank you,' she said coldly, but by a superhuman effort. "'My sister's help is quite enough.' He followed them with Lady Helen. At the carriage door the sisters hesitated a moment. Rose was helpless without her right hand. A little imperative movement from behind displaced Agnes, and Rose felt herself hoisted in by a strong arm. She sank into the farther corner. The glow of the dawn caught her white, delicate features, the curls on her temples, all the silken confusion of her dress. Hugh Flaxman put in Agnes and his sister, said something to Agnes about coming to inquire, and raised his hat.
Rose caught the quick force and intensity of his eyes, and then closed her own, lost in a languid swoon of pain, memory, and resentful wonder. Flaxman walked away down Park Lane, through the chill morning quietness, the gathering light striking over the houses beside him onto the misty stretches of the park. His hat was over his eyes, his hands thrust into his pockets. A close observer would have noticed a certain trembling of the lips. It was about a few seconds since her young, warm beauty had been, for an instant, in his arms. His whole being was shaken by it, and by that last look of hers. "'Have I gone too far?' he asked himself anxiously. "'Is it divinely true, already, that she resents being left to herself? Oh, little rebel! You tried your best not to let me see. But you were angry, you were. Now then, how to proceed? She's all fire, all character.' I rejoice in it. If she will give me trouble, so much the better. Poor little hurt thing! The fight is only beginning. But I will make her do penance some day for all that loftiness to-night." If these reflections betray to the reader a certain masterful note of confidence in Mr. Flaxman's mind, he will perhaps find small cause to regret that Rose did give him a great deal of trouble. Nothing could have been more salutary, to use his own word than the dance she led him during the next three weeks. She provoked him, indeed, at moments so much that he was a hundred times on the point of trying to seize his kingdom of heaven by violence, of throwing himself upon her with a tempest shock of reproach and appeal. But some secret instinct restrained him. She was willful, she was capricious, she had a real and powerful distraction in her art. He must be patient and risk nothing. He suspected, too, what was the truth that Lady Charlotte was doing harm. Rose, indeed, had grown so touchingly sensitive that she found offence in almost every word of Lady Charlotte's about her nephew. Why should the apparently casual remarks of the aunt bear so constantly on the subject of the nephew's social importance? Rose vowed to herself that she needed no reminder of that station whereunto it had pleased God to call her, and that Lady Charlotte might spare herself all those anxieties and reluctances which the girl's quick sense detected in spite of the invitations so freely showered on Lerwick Gardens. The end of it all was that Hugh Flaxman found himself again driven into a corner. At the bottom of him was still a confidence that would not yield. Was it possible that he had ever given her some tiny, voluntary glimpse of it, and that, but for that glimpse, she would have let him make his peace much more easily? At any rate, now he felt himself at the end of his resources. I must change the venue, he said to himself. Decidedly, I must change the venue. So, by the end of June, he had accepted an invitation to fish in Norway with a friend, and was gone. Rose received the news with a callousness which made even Lady Helen want to shake her. On the eve of his journey, however, Hugh Flaxman had at last confessed himself to Catherine and Robert. His obvious plight made any further scruples on their part futile, and what they had they gave him in the way of sympathy. Also Robert, gathering that he already knew much, and without betraying any confidence of Rose's, gave him a hint or two on the subject of Langham. But more not the friendliest mortal could do for him, and Flaxman went off into exile, announcing to a mocking Ellesmere that he should sit pensive on the banks of Norwegian rivers till fortune had had time to change. End of Book 6, Chapter 45